This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now in the United States this week, Donald Trump has been issuing warnings. The warning is that if he is indicted for taking classified documents to his home in Florida, Mar-a-Lago, after he left the White House and his presidency, he said people would be on the streets, Problems would arise, and I'm quoting him, in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. Lindsey Graham, who is a Republican senator and a very senior one, and of course a supporter of Trump, talked about riots on the streets. Of course, what we saw on January 6th before Joe Biden was inaugurated as president was a riot on the street. People died. It was a horrific sense of what could happen in America. Trump was at the heart of it, and his warning must be taken seriously. When you put that together with the war crimes being committed daily by Putin in his war in Ukraine, you see perhaps a glimpse of, a, of the future in which the West, which really depends on the United States' power, it's military power, its financial power, and indeed its willingness to defend the values in the free world, if that were to diminish or indeed disappear, as it may well do, we'd all be in trouble. We're joined now from Washington by Niall Stanish. Niall is the associate editor of The Hill, a very respected Washington newspaper, and also White House columnist for The Hill newspaper. Niall, the outline I just sketched there about what has happened in the United States this week, and we'll elaborate on that, but what has been happening with Trump, what happened on January the 6th, the imminent midterm elections, the fact that there is no obvious Democrat to run in the 2024 presidential race. In other words, the Republican Party may well go rogue, and there are signs of that which we'll talk about. If America goes rogue with a Republican president and a Republican House and Senate, the world will change, won't it? Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, there's there's quite a lot to unpack there, obviously. But, I mean, essentially the Republican Party is and has been for some time in the grip of uh, former President Trump and in the grip of his brand of sort of 
supranationalist populism, uh, tendency toward isolationism, all of that. Now, the, the two main strands, clearly, are a kind of pulling apart of the civic fabric in the United States, and then the international ramifications, if that were to continue or if that were to intensify. Um, as far as the civic fabric of the United States is concerned, I mean, we see all sorts of denialism uh, around not just the 2020 election, but the security of elections, generally speaking. Uh, we've seen a number of people win Republican nominations this primary season who support the former president's false claims of fraud in the 2020 election, and they will presumably uh, act um, in accordance with that overall view um, if they if they win their elections. Now, in relation to the international picture, you know, clearly more authoritarian nations, particularly China, believe that they have the upper hand here, basically because people like the Chinese Premier Xi Jinping argue that democracies require some sort of level of bedrock consensus, not yes. unanimity, but bedrock consensus in order to function. And the United States right now doesn't have that, which hamstrings its political effectiveness both at home and in the wider world to a very significant degree. And in this war that Putin started by invading Ukraine, the United States has stepped up to the plate in a pretty big way with money, arms, and all kinds of support that is making a difference. We saw this week a big fight back by Ukrainians. They couldn't have done that without the money, without the arms, and the means to fight back. And that fight back has been spectacularly successful. Mm. A United States that wasn't prepared to give that support would be really handing over Ukraine to the Russians. Absolutely. And to that point, Eamon, we, well, two things. Firstly, the United States during the Biden administration has given now slightly over $15 billion in military assistance to Ukraine. It seems highly unlikely, if not inconceivable, that that kind of sum would have been provided had Mr. Trump won re-election or in a scenario where he were elected president again or one of his acolytes were. The other point that goes directly to the issue that you raise is that people have almost, I think, forgotten now that Mr. Trump, the, the only president in American history to be twice uh, to be um, twice impeached, was impeached the first time around because of a phone call uh, to Ukraine, in essence, and to summarize what happened there, he was seeking to make U.S. aid to Ukraine conditional upon the Ukrainians trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden, who at the time was the most uh, likely rival or likely uh, opponent for Trump in the 2020 election. So you put those two factors together, the general isolationism and the willingness to make policy contingent upon whether foreign powers you know, help your friends and punish your enemies. Uh, and you have a pretty uh, disturbing picture that emerges. Now, Trump this week spoke out about the possibility of taking this to the streets, as it were, as he indeed he tried to take the election from Joe Biden on the streets and encourage his vice president to do something 
unthinkable, which Mike Pence, even Mike Pence, refused to do. That's where America is. What brought this outburst this week is these documents that were taken from the White House, classified documents. There's a couple of things I'd just like to clear up because his modus operandi is fascinating. This Stop the Steal, this idea that the election had been stolen started, I think Rudy Giuliani was someone Mm. who coined the phrase, but the point is that when Trump starts saying something, an awful lot of people, 70% or thereabouts of Republican voters, start believing it. So when he says, for example, of the documents that he took and has refused or had refused to return to the administration where they belong, he argues that he had declassified them and therefore they didn't belong to the state and they weren't classified documents. It's clear that he didn't have the power once he'd left the White House to declassify them. And there are some some documents even a president can't declassify and take away. Is that true? The question about whether he has the power after he leaves the presidency, that is certainly true. An ex-president doesn't have the ability to classify anything. Now, Trump's claim, as I understand it, is that there was a sort of routine, unofficial, or maybe unofficial is the wrong word, a loose declassification process while he was still president, that if he took documents out of the Oval Office and took them to his private residence, they, they were somehow magically declassified. While the president does have broad powers of declassification, uh, firstly, people who worked in the White House, for the most part, have no uh, recollection of such a system. And uh, secondly, it just seems to stand uh, against sort of common sense. It is worth noting, Eamon, I think, that while Trump himself claims that and, and some allies in the political world have claimed that, or in the media world, his lawyers have refrained from making that argument in any court filing that I have seen, and they seem reluctant to push that point, even though Trump himself appears to be using it for sort of uh, propagandistic purposes. And it's correct to say that he has the support of most elected Republicans in the House and the Senate, certainly their public support, whatever they think privately, Although it's known, for example, that Mitch McConnell, who is the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, despises him. He has still delivered what Mitch McConnell really wanted in the last presidency, which was three members of the Supreme Court and three conservative members who have made already one landmark decision about Roe v. Wade. So although someone of Mitch McConnell's standing clearly does despise him and is on the record in a way. In public, he has to go along with him. 
Yeah, I think that's largely true. I think even back in 2016, there was this phrase that Republicans and conservatives were holding their noses while voting for Trump. And the idea was that uh, conservatives, particularly, uh, well, firstly, establishment types like McConnell, and also, you know, social conservatives, people who were motivated in part by religiosity uh, to be uh, conservatives, dislike Trump's personal conduct and personal demeanor, but were willing to uh, vote for him in order to get things done. And, you know, top of the list, as you correctly point out, was the appointment of uh, conservative justices to the Supreme Court and conservative judges more generally throughout the system, something that will ensure that Trump's influence is felt for for decades to come in this country. Uh, As to the point about people uh, being acquiescent to Trump. I think we have seen that even after uh, January the 6th, there were initial criticisms by people like Kevin McCarthy from which they rode away uh, speedily. Now, um, McConnell was very critical at that time and hasn't been quite as uh, craven as McCarthy, but has more or less uh, quietened down or has only delivered hints of his disagreements and dislikes with Trump. That hasn't uh, spared him from um, Mr. Trump's ire. In fact, um, we're talking on on, uh, Friday morning, Washington time, and just yesterday, uh, yesterday afternoon, Mr. Trump issued a statement in which he referred to this absolute loser, Mitch McConnell, who folds every time against the Democrats. Um, yes. etc. So there's an enormous amount of enmity there. Now, the midterm elections in November are critical as to who will control the House of Representatives and the Senate. And the primaries for those to run for your party, you have to run against other, as they do in elections for the presidency in America. And Trump has had an enormous amount of influence in deciding who might run in these primaries and who might win. Mm. And he has had a lot of success, but one or two failures. And you wrote a fascinating piece now for The Hill this week about this and about the the characters that he has tried to make candidate for Republicans in November. Some of them are, well... Let's start with, um, well, you tell me where to start, because there's some curious characters there Mm. who have no real right to run for public office. Right. Well, I mean, I think one of the first examples of that would probably be Mehmet Oz, who's the Republican Senate nominee now in Pennsylvania. Mehmet Oz, better known as Dr. Oz, a TV doctor. He's been famous for a long time in this country. He has a syndicated show, which he had to give up or felt obliged to give up when he started running for office. But essentially, a sort of celebrity figure, and Trump, as we know, is uh, wowed by celebrity. And so he Uh, Trump endorsed Oz in the uh, Republican primary in Pennsylvania and really put put Mehmet Oz over the top there. The uh, difficulty is that Oz's lack of political experience has been shown in various rather clumsy comments he has made. And additionally, I mean, he has a history, a bit like Trump himself, of espousing more uh, in the past 
liberal or moderate views than he does now. I mean, people forget this, but Trump, years before he was president, was in favor of some sort of expanded health care, was in favor of abortion rights, and changed all that when he was running for president. Oz has followed a broadly similar trajectory, but with less success. And so Oz is now trailing the Democratic candidate in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, by about six points in the polls. That could still be turned around, but uh, the final point I'd make on that race, Yaman, is that it is happening because a Republican senator, Pat Toomey, is retiring. So if the Senate is split 50-50 right now, if Democrats were to win a seat back, so to speak, then that obviously complicates Republican efforts to win control of the chamber. And right now, Fetterman has a, has a very strong chance. He's the favorite in that race to, to win. So Trump's efforts to get his kind of followers, people who take his line on the various issues he's, he's interested in, they're not having universal success and there is some resistance. And the importance of that, is it, Niall, that what might be called the old-fashioned mainstream Republican Party mm. can occasionally fight back, but what Trump has fashioned is what might be described reasonably, I think, as a rogue Republican Party, mm. which isn't really the party of even Mitch McConnell, but it's certainly not the, the party of the Bushes or Eisenhower. This is a party of populists, many of them racists, many of them not really believing in the Constitution at all, as the voting showed around the January 6th findings. A lot of a lot of demagogic kind of characters, yes. certainly. There's no no question about that that element and things. And in Trump's backing for those people, the 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 problem um, is that he backs these people in primaries. They then win those primaries and struggle in the general election. It's not just Oz. I mean, Herschel Walker, a former um, football. By, which I mean, American football player in Georgia is in a tight race there against the sitting Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. There's another guy in Arizona, Blake Masters, who's struggling. There are a number of Trump candidates who are having difficulties there. But the thing that you get to in your question is the fact that so many Republican voters are sort of enthralled to Trumpism, I would say. Yes. And so. Trumpist candidates often win primaries, and then the question is whether they can prevail in general elections. In some cases, particularly in conservative-leaning states, they clearly can. But in other uh, cases, uh, like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Georgia, it's all—it's uh, sort of much more, much more difficult. And of course, in those circumstances, independent voters can be the key, both in these midterm elections and perhaps most more importantly, in presidential elections, they are the ones most likely to be turned off by Trumpist candidates. That's right, yes. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Trump himself lost in 2020. There was a particular resistance to him, I would say, among those kind of independent voters, among uh, suburban moderate voters, uh, among um, you know, honestly, some maybe Republican-leaning but more uh, informed uh, voters. So those those 
elements of resistance do pose a serious challenge to Trump. It is one of the reasons why, for all his strength over the Republican Party, it is always worth emphasizing that his uh, popularity ratings or opinion poll ratings with the general population continue to be pretty mediocre. And that, in turn, is one of the reasons why some of the more um, thinking people in the Republican Party wonder if another figure in the party, like, say, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, could end up being a more um, effective candidate while um, extolling similar kind of policies to Trump. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Just before going, I want to go back to Trump and a federal judge returned an opinion yesterday in the courts, which I want to get back to, but just in the case of Ron DeSantis, I mean, Ron DeSantis yesterday, or this week rather, he hired two airplanes and he loaded immigrants from Florida into those airplanes and he sent them to Martha's Vineyard. Mm. which is a popular place for the the rich and the famous in the United States. And then Greg Abbott, who's the governor of Texas and who may well, I'd say, be a rival to DeSantis possibly in some Mm -hmm. future place, he also hired buses and he sent busloads of immigrants to the home of the vice president, Kamala Harris. These are... Really, this is populism, but it's also barely within the the sort of rule of law. Mm. And to shift people around in a stunt like that, I mm. saw that I couldn't believe what I saw. Yes, I mean, it is very uh, controversial. And of course, it is, you know, when you see people who are um, in 
great difficulty in the, the circumstances of their lives being utilized for political stunts in that way, really in a way that is frankly intended to generate coverage for Fox News and for other conservative media. Uh, I mean, that there are clearly a lot of people who are um, appalled by that, even as there are others of a more um, nativist persuasion cheering from the sidelines. But I mean, it is... Uh, I mean, I think your point is really the sort of degradation of American yes. politics. And I think that that is uh, an episode, an ongoing episode, of course, that is emblematic of that sort of uh, degradation. Now, yesterday, Niall, a federal judge rejected the Justice Department's request to resume a key part of its inquiry into Trump's handling of the sensitive government records and she appointed an outside arbiter to review thousands of documents seized last month from his Florida residence, which is Mar-a-Lago, of course. The judge is Aileen M. Cannon. She was appointed by Donald Trump when he was president. She made a decision last week that a special master must be appointed to go through the documents. The effect of her judgment yesterday and before, is hindering the FBI and the Department of Justice's attempts to get to the bottom of this matter. This also strikes me, at least, as more political than judicial. Well, it strikes a lot of people that way because of her role being appointed by uh, by Trump and his side's decision to sort of seek out a court over which she presided in order to make this uh, appeal or to, uh, well, m- make this case. The the important thing, I think, Eamon, uh, apart from the general appointment of the special master, is that in the ruling that she uh, gave yesterday, that's Thursday here in the, in the U.S., she uh, not only announced the, the name of the special master, a semi-retired judge by the name of Raymond Deary, but she also provided a timescale for him to complete his work. And that timescale concludes on uh, November the 30th, which may, if we wanted to be very generous, be a, uh, you know, appropriate impartial deadline. But it is also a deadline which, of course, takes us approximately one month past the midterm elections. Um, Now, the argument put forth by some is that there are elements of the criminal investigation that could proceed. There may be elements of it that could proceed, but there isn't really any serious question that this really, this appointment of the special master will slow that investigation. And that obviously uh, plays into a traditional pattern of Mr. Trump's when it comes to legal cases, which is to delay as much as possible to try to tie people up in um, procedural knots and to run out the clock. Uh, All of this happens while, of course, he is presumed to be contemplating a 2024 bid for the presidency. If he were to declare such a campaign, it wouldn't change the nitty-gritty of the legal procedures, but it would clearly make it easier for him to argue that any prosecution was politically motivated. Yes, and he could run then as a martyr. Right. And the other interesting point you made there, or fact that you told us, was that when you're seeking judicial relief, you can pick 
the district. Mm. That's been done often in the United States, I know, by both sides, I'm quite sure. Mm. But you can actually pick a judge in, in the case of Donald Trump that you have appointed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, court shopping is what it's generally known as. No, you can't, I mean, it, it's not absolutely blanket. You can't decide in a case that's in Florida <laughs> no. that you want to go to Utah. But well, I'd you, pick you, Judge Stanage. <laughs> If I was in trouble. I would, I would render a very generous and forgiving verdict on you, Eamon, obviously. But, um, That's effectively what we're talking about here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a very bizarre uh, situation in all kinds of ways that you can go around looking for either a uh, judge or, in some cases, a particular um, um, court circuit that is yes. perceived to be more conservative or more liberal. I mean, we've seen that sometimes with issues like abortion, where activists yes. on one side or another have tried to pick uh, territory to proceed with cases in order to get more conservative or less conservative judges to adjudicate on. Now, just a final point, Niall, about a very significant character in the end game which came on January the 6th. Mark Meadows was mm. the chief of staff to Donald Trump at the end. He was very influential in those days when the insurrection was being prepared and indeed on the day itself and subsequently. He has refused so far to cooperate with the January 6th committee, but we understand, or I understand from yesterday he has announced that he will cooperate with the Department of Justice who are seeking, or is it the January 6th committee, who are seeking things like texts, emails, and stuff like that. Mm. Were he to cooperate, that would be a significant development. It would. Now, right now, he's in a sort of a middle ground. This recent development pertains to the Department of Justice's investigation into January the 6th, which, of course, coming from the Department of Justice, would have the capacity to criminally prosecute people, which the House Committee, the committee yes. holding those televised hearings, does not have. What Meadows has uh, apparently agreed to do or acceded to doing is um, complying with a subpoena that is looking for documentation. Now, he has uh, apparently supplied things like texts. He did also, excuse me, also supply similar things like that to the House Committee. The thing that I say puts him in a middle ground is that, to our knowledge, he has not testified to either of those bodies. Yes. He has simply provided them with some uh, fairly significant amount of documentation and, I think, withheld other uh, things too. So uh, the mere fact that he is cooperating at some level appears to have earned him the suspicion of uh, people in the Trump circle. It is significant because he was so close to Trump as his White House chief of staff. The particulars of it, though, were just, we don't know a whole lot about one way or another, to be perfectly honest. Now, uh, finally, Niall, the timeline for the January 6th committee, when the midterms take place, the assumption is that, and it's the committee of the House of representatives that if, as expected, the Republicans take the House of Representatives in the midterms, the January 6th committee really will have to walk in January when the new House assembles. So they are really up against 
time in a big way. Mm. The question I have for you is, can the, the Justice Department use the evidence or at least continue the inquiry into January the 6th in the manner that the House committee did? Yes, is the short answer. Now, there has been some uh, back and forth, I would say, uh, between the Department of Justice and the House committee as to whether the House committee will provide, will just hand over all of its evidence to the Department of Justice. But the Department of Justice can continue to pursue uh, a criminal investigation, regardless of who is in control of the House of Representatives. Now, if further down the line a Republican won the White House, particularly if that Republican was Donald Trump, one would assume he would install his allies in the Department of Justice and you'd be in a whole different landscape. But for the moment, the DOJ can continue to investigate January the 6th, even though if Republicans take the House, as we expect in November, um, that'll be the end of the road for the January 6th committee. I should say, Eamon, just briefly in, in finishing off, the the House Select Committee on January the 6th is well aware of that fact and yes. hopes to finish its work before it even gets to that point. Right. Uh, one of our listeners, Niall, sent us a mail mm. wondering what had happened to Pete Buttigieg, who was mm. one of the candidates in the primaries to be president, the Democratic primaries. He, he came pretty close, I think, in the end, but we haven't heard much of him since, and our listener wants to know why and where is he now. Um, he is now uh, the Secretary of Transportation um, in the Biden administration. Um, obviously, that's not the, the most high-profile role uh, possible, but he still has uh, domestically um, a uh, profile here. And, you know, if Joe Biden were not to run in 2024, I think Buttigieg might run. Just to, you know, address your listener's point directly about, you know, his, his chances. Um, he's a very polished media performer. He has some fans in the Democratic Party. He has two drawbacks. One, uh, a failing of his and the other, not at all a failing of his. The failing of his is that he tends to be rather vague and sort of nebulous and in favor of random good things, unspecified and against bad things. Um, and so there's a sort of vacuousness sometimes that people don't like. The other thing, though, for which obviously he bears no responsibility, it's a failing of society, is um, he's openly gay. And there is a question about whether the United States would elect an openly gay man as president. Okay, Niall, thank you for that information and thank you for everything this morning because I took a rather circular <laughs> route because it seems to me that this battle for the soul of the Republican Party and therefore maybe even for the soul of the United States of America is, is very, very serious. And if uh, the wrong guys win, we could all be in big trouble. We're very grateful to Niall Stanich, of course, to all of you for listening, that's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.